0: Father, we come to you this morning and it's our desire to be able to say blessed be your name, to praise you, to worship you, whether we're in great circumstances or or if life is really, really difficult, help us to say blessed be your name, to choose to say blessed be your name. When the sun's shining down or when the road is dark with suffering, help us to still choose to say blessed be your name. Help us to be worshippers of you in good and bad and in dark and light and in every situation come to you this morning and we pray that you would meet with us now as we study your word together, Father as we look at what it means to make Jesus Lord, to surrender different aspects of our lives to Jesus, help us to humble ourselves under the authority of your word, help us to meet with you, help us to be challenged, to be encouraged, to be changed, help us to live our lives more in conformity with your will we pray, bless us together we pray this morning, for we ask it in Jesus name. Amen. Now we're renewing our studies in the book of Colossians in the Bible today after having taken a break over the Easter period. And we're looking at Colossians. It was a letter written by Paul the Apostle, who was one of the main leaders of the early church in the first century during the the time of the Bible being written. And he was in prison in Rome, and he was writing this letter to the church in Colossae uh, to a group of Christians there in the city of Colossae, in what is now modern-day Turkey. And one of the things that we've seen as we've studied Colossians, as we've gone through it, there's lots of different themes that are picked out, but one thing that we've seen as we've gone through Colossians is that when a person trusts in Jesus and surrenders their life to him, that person becomes a new person with a new identity. We call it being born again. They don't look any different. We still look the same, but deep inside we're changed. We're new. We're a brand-new person. And our lives are changed and our identity is changed. No longer are we seen by God in the way he used to see us, he now sees us very differently. We have a new identity with Jesus at the centre, Jesus as Lord. We've surrendered to Jesus. And that new identity should mean that a person who has surrendered their life to Jesus should behave differently in every different area, different aspect, different part of their life. We know that we sometimes really struggle to do that, and that's where the Christian faith kind of really gets serious, where the rubber hits the road, as it were, when we take our faith, what we believe, what we profess, and we try and apply that to those difficult situations, those nitty-gritty situations to, to family, to work, to neighbors, and all those kind of things, to have Jesus at the center and so accordingly to live differently. Our lives should look differently to the way they used to look. We should be different kinds of people. And key to this concept is that trusting in Jesus isn't just about trusting in Jesus, not just about getting our sins forgiven and having eternal life. That, that, that's very much a part of becoming a Christian. But trusting in Jesus, right at the center of this concept, is about surrendering our lives to Jesus. It's about surrendering and saying, I'm no longer in charge of my life. Jesus, here is my life, and you are now in charge. So that Jesus is Lord Jesus is Lord. It says up there on the, the wall, Jesus Christ is Lord. And you probably don't even see that half the time because we're used to it being up there. But that's a whole statement. It's a statement about this church that no person is in charge. It's Jesus is in charge. But also it should be a statement about our own lives, that Jesus is Lord. And that's not just a title. It's, it, it has deep meaning because it means that Jesus is in charge. Sometimes I find it helpful to, 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 to kind of change words that we use because words become familiar and they kind of trip off our tongue. And sometimes it might be helpful to us to, to kind of uh, substitute something like the word Lord for, for master, or, uh, or boss, or commander, or leader, or, because then it kind of becomes fresh to us. Jesus Christ is boss. Jesus Christ is my Lord. Jesus Christ is my master. He is the one in charge. Lord sometimes kind of just kind of trips off the tongue, and we, the, the significance of what that means sometimes can be lost to us. For Jesus to be Lord simply means that he is in charge. It means that Jesus is our master. We surrender to Jesus. He becomes in charge of our lives. It's about submitting area, every area of our lives to him. And, and this is difficult, isn't it? It's not always easy to do that because our old life, our old identity, still wants to pull us back to, to live the way that we want to live. And there's this kind of daily challenge that we have about that choice of submitting every area of our lives to him, our work life, submitting our work life to Jesus, our sex life, our money, our marriages, our relationships, our families, our careers, so that Jesus is Lord of those things and not the other way around, not that we're Lord of those things. The very last verse that we looked at in Colossians a few weeks ago is the last verse of the last passage, and it sums up this whole concept for us. Paul says this, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, so whether it's something we do or something we say, whatever we do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, on your seat, there's an outline. All the, the verses, or most of the verses that we're looking at today will be on that outline. There's things there for you to fill in if you find that helpful. If not, that's fine. Just ignore it. And uh, the verses are all also up there on the screen. So Paul says, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. Do it all in the name of the Lord, in the name of the one who is in charge of your life. So whatever we say or do in life, we're meant to do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. In other words, whatever we say or do should be done in the way that Jesus wants us to do it. That's effectively what this means. To do it in the name of Jesus means to do what I'm doing in the way that Jesus would want me to do it. So write this down, point number one this morning. God wants me to surrender to Jesus as my Lord, and allow him to rule every area of my life. God wants me to surrender to Jesus as my Lord so that he is in charge, he is in control of my life, I am voluntarily surrendering my life to Jesus, and allowing him to rule every area so that I no longer call the shots for how I function and behave in different areas of my life. Jesus now does that. It is Jesus that we take our lead from and our guide, so that he rules every single area of my life. When we talk about the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not just a name, it's not just a title that we're using. We're saying that he is my Lord and that every area of my life is under his control. Or that, at the very least, I'm seeking to do that. None of us can say that every area of our lives is completely under God's control, can we? But that we are trying to do that. That's our, that's our kind of direction in life, that I'm trying to live today. I'm going to try to live today in the best of my strength and best of my abilities, to live with Jesus as my Lord, with Jesus in charge of my life. That is my goal today. I'm not going to get it right. Sometimes I'm going to blow it. Sometimes I'll get that wrong. But I'm going to try and put Jesus on the throne of my life. And that's a decision I'm going to make every day. And having said these words, Paul then proceeds to explain what that looks like in a specific part of life, namely, chiefly today, in our homes and in our workplace. What does it look like? for Jesus to be Lord in our home life and in our workplaces. So we're going to read from Colossians chapter 3, and we're going to read from verse 18 to verse 1 of chapter 4. So Colossians chapter 3, if you've got a Bible, if you want to follow, or if you just want to listen as I read it, that's fine. Colossians chapter 3, verse 18 to verse 1 of chapter 4. And Paul, as he's in prison, seeking to live for Jesus, seeking to spread the good news, writing this letter to the Christians in Colossae, he writes these words. And in fact, let's read from verse 17 because the, uh, the kind of English translations unhelpfully insert little titles which are not there in the original. And so this all just kind of flows. And Paul says, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So what does this look like? Well, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, Obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for men. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know you also have a master in heaven. And this passage deals with six different subjects, which are in pairs. So there's three pairs or three sets. And the first one is this, how wives should relate to their husbands and how husbands should relate to their wives. Secondly, how children should relate to their parents. And then he looks at how uh, parents should relate to their children. And then he looks at how slaves should relate to their masters, and how slave owners should relate to their slaves. And in each one of these situations, Paul refers to Jesus as being Lord. In fact, he refers to Jesus' Lordship, as we call it, seven times in total in this brief passage. And in each one of these situations, he refers to Jesus' lordship, the fact that Jesus should be lord in those circumstances. Paul is saying that in each of these situations, Jesus should be lord. And if Jesus is lord of these these situations and relationships, then there will be some really clear results that will come out of it. So the first situation Paul describes is marriage. The first thing he tells us is that to have, and write this down, to have Jesus as Lord means that wives will submit to their husbands. To have Jesus as Lord in a marriage for a wife will mean that the wife submits to her husband. Now that might seem really old-fashioned, that might seem really out of date, maybe even sexist, but that's what the Bible teaches, and not just here, but consistently throughout the Bible. Paul says in verse 18, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord, so straight away he's earthing this, not in some cultural situation, but in the, the lordship of Jesus. Do it because it's fitting in the Lord. For a wife to submit to her husband is something that demonstrates that Jesus is Lord of her life. It's fitting in the Lord, he says. But how does a wife submitting to her husband show that Jesus? Is Lord Well, as part of living out our new identity and as a mark of being filled with the Holy Spirit, we should submit to those that God has placed above us or over us. And God's order and structure for society, and especially for his people, involves certain layers of authority or a kind of structure uh, of order. And one of those is where the husband is described as being the head of the wife and the wife submitting to the husband. Now this does not mean, and do not make the mistake of thinking I'm teaching, or the Bible is teaching, that the wife is inferior to the husband. That is not what I'm saying, and that's not what the Bible says. It's about God's order and structure. It's something we call headship. The Bible says this, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, he says, the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. That's a structure that God has designed, a timeless structure for society, for his people, for the church. God, then Christ, then man, then woman, then children. Now, that doesn't mean that the wife is inferior to the husband any more than it means that Christ is inferior to God. Okay? Christ and the Father, the Son and the Father are one, and yet in their relationship, the Son defers to the Father. He chooses to submit to the Father, even though they're equal. And husband and wife are equal, and yet in God's order, the way God has designed his, his world, the way God's designed society to function, doesn't always function that way, but the way God has designed it, the wife is to choose to submit to, the fa- uh, to their husband. So just as Christ chose to submit to his father, even though he was equal to him, wives are instructed here to choose to submit to their husbands. The Bible says that wives should submit to their husbands in the same way, in Ephesians we read these words, in the same way as the the church submits to Christ. So just as we as a church submit to the the headship of Christ over this church, so wives are called to submit to their husbands as head over them. Submission is a choice that is made to honour God. Let me repeat that. Submission is a choice that is made to honour God, as is fitting in the Lord, Paul says. This isn't a cultural situation, a slavery is. We'll see that later on. The theology of headship is something that rises above culture and time. It's a timeless principle. The Apostle Peter says these words, For this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their husbands. A wife's submission in a marriage, according to the Bible, is a mark of beauty. Submission to a husband by a wife is done as if it was actually done to Jesus himself. That is what Paul is teaching. And the Apostles Paul and Peter are are teaching that if a wife submits to her husband or if she wants to honour God then the way to do that, one of the ways to do that is to submit to her husband. And when she does that, if she submits to her husband, she's submitting to God's order. So it's not about submitting to the husband as such, it's about submitting to how God has structured his world with this principle of headship, God, Christ, man, woman and children. Now it's important to note here that submission is a choice. It's not something the husband forces upon the wife. It's something the wife chooses to do. It's a choice. Submission is a choice. However, it's not conditional. Paul doesn't say, submit to your husband if he's loving to you, if he's nice. Not if we agree with him, but in everything the Bible says. However, if if submitting to a husband means that a wife is no longer submitting to Jesus, then she's not to submit to her husband. She's to submit to Jesus because Jesus is the Lord of both the husband and the wife. In other words, if a husband is asking his wife to do something that is sinful or something that is illegal, then she shouldn't do that because then she wouldn't be submitting to Jesus. And Jesus is the Lord of husband and wife. And ultimately, this is about submission to Jesus rather than just the husband. Submission does not mean that the wife cannot think for herself or express her opinions or challenge her husband. She can do all of those things, as long as she's doing so in a respectful way and will, in the end, choose to submit. Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, questioned the Father. The one who was submitting to the Father, yet was equal to him, he questioned his Father. He said this, If it's possible, let this experience of of crucifixion be taken from me, yet not what I want, but your will be done. On the cross, Jesus cried out to God the Father, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus questioned, but then he chose Willingly to submit to his father. But it's not just a wife who's meant to demonstrate that Jesus is Lord over her marriage. The second point is this, that to have Jesus as Lord means that husbands will sacrificially love their wives. Write that down. To have Jesus as Lord means that husbands will sacrificially love their wives. So if a husband wants to surrender and have Jesus as Lord of his life, then that has to include his marriage. And in marriage, the way that, well, one of the ways that a husband is to demonstrate Jesus' lordship over them is to sacrificially love their wives. The husband that demands submission from his wife has missed the point entirely. The Bible teaches us that husbands are to love their wives in a self-sacrificing way, irrespective of how the wife behaves. And the husband who loves their wife in a self-sacrificing way is the husband that demonstrates that Jesus is lord over his marriage. Paul says in verse 19, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, the Greek word that's translated as love in this verse is agapao, and it means self-sacrificing love. There's different Greek words that are translated as love, but this word is agapao, and it means self-sacrificing love. It's the highest form of love. It's the word that's always used to describe God's love for Jesus and for God's love for the world, where it said that God so loved the world he gave his one and only son there on the cross. That word there is agapato. And Paul is saying that husbands are to sacrificially love their wives just as, just as God sacrificially loved the church and gave his very best for it. And just as Jesus gave himself up for the world. It's the highest form of love. And it's the word that's used of God's love for us. It's the word that's described or is used to describe how Jesus gave himself for us on the cross. And Paul writes in Ephesians, he says that husbands are to love their wives in the same way that Jesus loved us and gave himself for us on the cross. The husband who claims Jesus as Lord will never verbally, spiritually, or physically abuse his wife. Instead, the opposite should be true. That The husband who claims Jesus as Lord will treat his wife with the utmost respect and honor, always seeking her best in everything sacrificially giving of himself so that his wife flourishes in every way and he honors her physically and, and sexually and financially and in every way in their life, that that wife is lifted up and honored and treated with greatest and deepest respect. Because just as Jesus gave of himself utterly and completely on the cross, that is how a husband is to treat his wife. And if a husband is treating his wife in the way that Jesus treated us, then a wife should have no problem in submitting, choosing to submit to her husband in the same way as Christians are meant to submit to Jesus. Paul also talks about what it looks like for Jesus to be Lord over a family in the relationship between parents and their children. So write this down. To have Jesus as Lord means that children will obey their parents. Children will obey their parents. All children, whether they're 5 or 55, should honor their parents. So I still have to honor my parents. I don't have to obey my dad anymore, but I do have to honor them. But there's a difference here this is talking about obeying and it's talking about children who still live under the same roof a part of the household are instructed to obey their parents paul says in verse 20 children obey your parents in everything and again he refers to the lordship of christ he says for this pleases the lord this pleases the one whom you've surrendered your life to when a child obeys his parents or her parents it pleases jesus it shows the lordship of jesus in that relationship. And the Greek word for obey is a stronger word than the word that's used for submit. It's a different Greek word. Submission is about a choice. Obeying is mandatory. But just as with wives and husband, Paul also gives us two aspects when it comes to parents and children. Children should obey their parents, but parents also have, a, 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 actually probably a much greater responsibility to their children. Write this down. To have Jesus as Lord means that parents will encourage and instruct their children. To have Jesus as Lord in a family means that parents will encourage and instruct their children. It's not just a one-way street of obedience from the children. Parents who claim Jesus as Lord are to encourage their children instead of discouraging them or making them bitter by being too harsh with them. You can check with my children how this is going afterwards. Paul says in verse 21, Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. And in Ephesians, in a kind of parallel passage, he says this, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and in the instruction of the Lord. Demanding too much or disciplining children too much will embitter them and discourage them, and it will potentially put them off following Jesus forever. And as parents, we have to encourage our children in general, and especially in their spiritual life, and we need to teach them and instruct them, Paul is saying, from the Bible. Those of us who have children at home with us have a responsibility to teach them from the Bible and to take the spiritual lead in their lives, particularly as fathers. Our role is kind of pastor dad, shepherd dad. The spiritual welfare of our children is our responsibility. That's a serious role for us as dads to take. Now, children ultimately have their own choices to make, and some will reject the instruction and the guidance that we give. But as long as they're under our roof, we have to do all we can to raise our children with us as their spiritual head. And if we have younger children, we mustn't leave the job of teaching them from the Bible and instructing them in God's way to so they Sunday school teachers. You know, the idea that I bring my kids and I dump them in church and then over to you guys in the Sunday school and you can raise my children spiritually, that is completely foreign to the Bible. If we have high school age children... We mustn't leave the job of teaching them from the Bible and instructing them in God's ways to the youth leaders and to Ryan. If we've got that in our heads, we've, we've kind of missed the point. That's abdicating our responsibility. It is my job as a father to instruct my children. And any help I might get from my church is a bonus, and I'm so grateful and so glad for all our Sunday school workers and creche workers and youth leaders. It's fantastic. And guys who are taking a night out of their busy schedule on Friday night to take the young, some of the young people away for a night, it's fantastic, but that doesn't excuse me or replace me from my role of taking the lead in raising my children. It's my responsibility to train and instruct my kids, not the Sunday school teachers and not the youth leaders, and and, and we should have Sunday schools, and it's fantastic, and and youth groups, and I give thanks for all those in this church who who work with children and young people, but their existence is not an excuse for us as parents to abdicate our responsibilities. The third pair of situations relates to slaves and their masters. Now, we need to provide a bit of a context here to this passage because Paul talks about slaves, but obviously we don't have slaves today in this country, thank goodness. At the time Paul was writing this, about one-third of the people in the Roman Empire, which, which was the, the world as it was known then was the Roman Empire, about one-third of the people were slaves. One-third of the people of the Roman Empire were slaves. Some of them lived in terrible conditions, but probably the majority of them were household slaves. And they lived in the house... Uh, or or in rooms attached to the family home. And the standard household in the first century of the Roman Empire would have been much larger larger than just two adults and two children. There would probably be more children than that for a start. But part of the household, as it was referred to, would have included all these extra slaves who lived with the family. And so when we read in the New Testament about the household, it's talking about everybody who would live in a particular house. And this would often include numerous slaves. Some slaves had bad lives, but others would help look after their master's children. Some would even manage their master's business and effectively would be the sort of chief exec of, of, of their businesses, even though they were slaves. And slavery in this time was not at all like the slavery of Africans who were brutally taken to the Americas in the 18th and 19th centuries. We, we, we mustn't kind of look at slavery in the New Testament through the eyes of the terrible slavery that has existed at other times in history. It was a slightly different context and setting. For instance, slavery in the, in the Roman Empire wasn't race-based. All sorts of people, pretty much every different race and, and country, people came from and were slaves. And some people even sold themselves, in, sold themselves into slavery... To get themselves out of debt and poverty there was no other choice it was a bit like the workhouse perhaps a hundred years ago here you had, if you were going to starve you sold yourself into slavery some people even chose to become slaves to avoid dying of poverty and so when people in colossi where paul was writing to began to respond to the good news about jesus some of them were slaves and some would have owned slaves most of these people that were reading this letter that paul was writing either owned slaves or were slaves you were pretty much in the roman empire either a slave or a slave owner And so that's why Paul, when he writes about the household, slaves are right there in the midst of it all, because this was just the the fact of life uh, in the New Testament. So when Paul describes what it looks like for Jesus to be Lord in the home, he talks about slaves and slave owners, because many of the Christians in Colossae would have been in exactly that situation. So why doesn't Paul here teach, and and in other places for that matter, why doesn't he teach that slavery is wrong? Because clearly it is abhorrent, It, 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 it is utterly wrong. Well, I need to be really, really clear. The Bible never approves of slavery or encourages it. It it just deals with it as a fact of life. It simply was a fact of life when Paul was writing this. The Bible clearly teaches that every single human being is equal. Every single human being is made in God's image, irrespective of race, color of skin, nationality, social standing, education, whatever. We are all equally valuable in God's sight and all loved by Jesus. And so slavery is clearly utterly wrong. But there are a number of reasons why the New Testament doesn't explicitly encourage the abolition of slavery or teach against it. Slavery was an integral part of the social and economic world of the New Testament, of the first century. It was just, it was just kind of bound into life. It was as much kind of normal life there as capitalism is today in the West. It's just the way our system works here and it was the way the system worked then. To ask Christians to try and rise up and abolish slavery was basically to ask them to bring down the Roman Empire. That's what you were asking them to do if they were to try and abolish slavery. That was unthinkable. Christians, whether slaves or slave owners, were a tiny, tiny group, 0.00000, 0.00, 0.00 something percentage of the, of the population of the Roman Empire. There were a tiny number of people in an otherwise all-powerful Roman Empire. And they lacked the power to influence government policy uh, in the way that the church, perhaps in the 19th century, did in the UK when slavery was finally abolished in the British Empire. They didn't have the opportunity, as we do now, to sort of write to MPs or to lobby Parliament, that kind of thing. That was just completely foreign to them. They had no concept of that. It didn't exist. They wouldn't have been able to do that. They couldn't have gone on social media. They couldn't have organized marches. That, that was, it just didn't. It wasn't an option for them. And we need to be careful that we don't try and put our expectations on people who were in a very different cultural setting to us. They they lacked that power to influence government policy. And even if Christian slave owners released their slaves, and some of them clearly did, it, it wasn't always into the freedom that we would think it would be into. Freedom wasn't good for slaves in the way that it would be today. Once free, many slaves would find themselves in an even worse situation than when they'd been enslaved. Because to free your slaves would, in many cases, consign them to poverty and starvation. Because people either owned slaves or were slaves. There was no kind of middle sort of free situation, or, or, or very, very few people. And the culture didn't enable people to thrive as free men. That that was very rare. It did exist, but it was very rare. So to. Free all my slaves. If I had a household of slaves and I became a Christian, I thought, right, I need to free all these slaves. Actually, what I'd probably be doing is consigning them to death because they would have no means of supporting themselves. They wouldn't be able to work. They wouldn't be able to find work unless they became slaves of somebody else. And so they would probably die of starvation. So freedom wasn't perhaps the thing that we would think of it as being today. And the early church knew that slavery wasn't going to be abolished anytime soon. And they knew they didn't have the political power to bring it to an end. So instead they focused on encouraging their fellow Christians to realize in their relationships with each other that their new identity was ultimately what mattered and that it should dictate the way that they would relate to each other. So Paul is saying, look, you have to accept pretty much the facts of life that we exist in. And let's take our new identity and bring it to bear on these relationships and these situations that we find ourselves in that the human identity and position couldn't be easily changed. But what mattered was that these earthly realities were seen to be trivial in comparison to eternal spiritual realities. Paul is arguing elsewhere that you know, this life is over and is very brief, and what really matters is eternity. So as horrendous as it may well have been for some slaves, Paul is trying to lift their eyes to something greater and more eternal. Arguably, the greatest reason was that spreading the good news about Jesus was the most important thing for the Christians in the New Testament to focus on, and it should still be for us today. Paul says this to Titus. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything. To try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. As important as the rights of slaves and social justice is, and these things are are, are very important for us, and it's part of our kingdom mandate of trying to bring God's kingdom into this world, and righting wrongs, and bringing social justice into terrible situations. As important as that is, and was, making the teaching about God our saviour, in other words, the gospel, making that attractive, Paul says, is even more important. If they were good slaves, then Christian slaves were more likely to be able to share the good news with Jesus, uh, sorry, with their masters about Jesus. And in turn, some of them might trust in Jesus themselves. And if Christians had tried to, to throw off slavery at this point in history, then the Christians would have just simply been rounded up. They were a tiny number of people in reality. The church didn't exist as we know it today. They would have been rounded up, they would have been put to death, and that would have been the end of the gospel. It would be two or three hundred years before the, the church had grown sufficiently to be able to exert sufficient influence in society and to be able to bring change and social change. And when the church is that influential, we should try and bring social change and we should bring social justice. And we praise God for people like Wilberforce, who in the, 18th, in the 19th century stood up as long with many others and who brought slavery to an end as well as campaigning against many other social injustices. But at this point in history, that wasn't an option. So Paul, knowing all these facts, has to deal with slavery as a fact of life. It's a horrible fact of life, but it's a fact of life. But it's also a very different kind of slavery, perhaps to the one that we're used to thinking of uh, in more modern history. So Paul, knowing all these facts, says this, that to have Jesus as Lord means that slaves, and if we contextualize that to today, which we're going to do in a minute, and employees will work for their master as if working for Jesus. To have Jesus as Lord means that slaves and employees today will work for their master as if working for Jesus. These verses were written to people who were, or or some of them were slaves. But the principles apply just as much, arguably even more in some ways, to our modern setting where we're employed by somebody. If slaves were to work as if they were working for Jesus, then how much more should those of us who are freely employed by somebody work for our employers as if we're working for Jesus? These slaves didn't have much choice anyway. Paul says, even though you have no choice, still choose to work for Jesus. So when we have a choice, and we do today, let us, the challenge I think is for us to, 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 to try and work for our employers today, our bosses, as if we're working for Jesus. Paul says in verse 23, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you, and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. If we're employed by someone, then not only should we work hard for our employer just when they're watching us, but we need to do the same when they're not watching us. It's called integrity. So that The person I am here is also the person I am over here when it's in light and in darkness, when somebody's watching, when someone's not watching. I am the same person. So whether my boss is watching me or whether I'm on my own, I'm giving the same, and I'm giving the same as if I'm working for Jesus. Showing integrity, and to do that, Paul is saying, is to be reverent to Jesus. To work with integrity is to show the lordship of Jesus in our workplace. And when we give our very best in the workplace, and especially when nobody else is looking, then we're demonstrating that Jesus is Lord. My faith isn't just a kind of surface level thing which people see when I, when I, make a, you know, when I choose because they're watching me. It, it instructs who I am, even in the darkness. It instructs who I am when nobody else is watching me. Paul says in verses 23 and 24, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. You know, for Christian slaves, it must have been really helpful to approach their work as if they were really working for Jesus. I remember reading a testimony of a man who was a Christian in Soviet Russia who was arrested, taken to a gulag, a labor camp, And he had to clean out the slurry pits every day, the human effluent. That was his job. And he said the thing that got him through each day before he was finally released many years later, he went into that situation, I'm doing this for Jesus. I'm doing this for Jesus. Now, I don't know how I would have responded to that. But that was what got him through that horrendous situation, that this wasn't for these evil guards that were punishing him. This was for Jesus. And so he was able to look beyond the horrendous situation he was in, the horror of the guards and the camp and the oppression, and do it for Jesus. And the same is true, or should be true, in our modern-day employment. You know, we might not like our jobs at times. We might not like our bosses at times. But if we can do our job for Jesus rather than our employer, it will make a huge difference. And the point is that whatever we do in life, we are really doing everything for Jesus, or we should be. That's the whole point of this passage. Everything ultimately is about the Lordship of Christ. We might do something for another person, but ultimately we do it for Jesus. And we might not get the rewards we would like. This is what Paul is saying. You know, you're a slave, you may, you're never going to see any reward. Not in this life. But the rewards in the life to come when we're with Jesus far outweigh anything. You're going to lose out in this world because you're doing this for Jesus. And here in this life, in our cultural setting, we might not get the pay rise or the pension or the conditions we would like, but the rewards we will receive from Jesus throughout eternity as we submit to him here will far outweigh anything we will miss out on here. And the Christian employee might not always be the best at their job or the smartest or the quickest, but they should be the most reliable, the most honest, and the one with the greatest integrity. Christian employee might not always be the best. There might be others who are better in your workplace than you are, more gifted, more talented, more able in whatever you do. But the Christian employee should always be the most honest, the one with the greatest integrity, the one who is most reliable. It's often really difficult, isn't it, to put this into practice at work, especially if we really hate our job. And I was fortunate for most of my working career, 10 years in the civil service, that most of that time I really enjoyed what I did very difficult, very different if we're in a job which we really hate. Particularly if we were slaves in this kind of New Testament setting. But if we can view all that we do as if we're doing it for Jesus, it really makes a huge difference. So I'm writing this report for Jesus. I'm plastering this ceiling for Jesus. I'm teaching these kids today for Jesus. I'm caring for this patient for Jesus. I'm fixing this computer for Jesus. I'm doing this presentation for Jesus. I'm working in this shop for Jesus. Because your employer, whether it's the NHS, the lo- local government, whether it's a local supermarket, whether it's a, a s- somebody you're doing a job for, they're not always going to behave as they should do. They're not always going to treat us as we ought to be treated. And the call of this passage is to look beyond our immediate situations and to do it for Jesus. And wouldn't it be great if, because of the respect we've earned from our boss, that we were able to lead them to faith in Christ? The last category that Paul deals with is that of slave owners. So write this down. To have Jesus as Lord means that slave owners and employers, if we contextualize it today, will treat their slaves and employees and, or staff in a Christ-like way. Will treat them in a Christ-like way. None of us are slave owners, not that I know of. You've been keeping it quiet if you are. Some of you might employ people. Some of you may employ staff who actually work for you under contract. Some of you may have staff that are underneath you in a management chain. And whilst the culture has changed, the principles we can still take from this passage are still true. The Christian employer or manager should strive to be the best employer or manager. We might not be able to pay the best wages. We may not be able to give the best conditions. But if we can always be uh, the best that we can be, to employ our staff, to treat our staff, whether we employ them or we just manage them, as Jesus would treat them. Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 4, Masters, provide your slaves what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Interestingly, the man who was carrying this letter for Paul was being accompanied by a man who was a slave called called Onesimus. And as they went with this letter to the church in Colossae, they carried another letter, to a man called Philemon. And Philemon was the slave owner of Onesimus. Onesimus had become a Christian through Paul. And Onesimus was going back to his slave owner, who he'd run away from. And if you want to look this afternoon or sometime this week, you can read in Philemon, Paul writes to to Philemon, the slave owner, and says, you need to be reconciled, no longer as master and slave owner, but as brothers. Paul seems to be implying there that you need to get rid of this relationship of slave owner and slave. And now you're brothers, you're one. But this was real in Paul's time. And so as as Philemon would have been reading this and reading the letter to Philemon written by Paul, masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. In our dealings with employees and staff, if we have them, we need to be Christ-like. Paul's reminding those that were slave masters that they also have a master and a Lord. And just as they've received so much from from their master and from their Lord in heaven, they ought to also provide for and treat well their slaves. If Jesus is our master and we have people who, under, who are under us in our employment and we've been so blessed by Jesus, then we need to bless those underneath us, don't we, and treat them in the way that Jesus has treated us. And so for those of us who have employees and staff, wouldn't it be great if by being such a good boss that we were able to lead our staff to faith in Christ because that needs to be our ultimate goal. So trusting in Jesus For forgiveness and eternal life is not just about the benefits we receive. It's also about a surrendering of our lives. A surrendering of our life to Jesus and putting him as Lord into every situation. And that means that we will will seek each day. And this is really difficult to do. and, and, And every day we're going to have to make that choice. And some days we're going to get it right and other days we won't. Sometimes we'll blow it. Sometimes we'll do it properly but to to, to seek, to submit, to live for Jesus so that he is Lord in every situation. And that means that he'll be Lord of our marriages. It means that he'll be Lord of our family life and our work life. Even those those situations can be really, really challenging for us at times. So let's commit ourselves this morning to the Lordship of Jesus. When we use that term, the Lord Jesus Christ or the Lord, let's remember what is implicit in that, what that really means. We're saying that, He's the boss. He's in charge of every area of my life. So let's commit ourselves to that lordship and let's make that daily choice to surrender to Jesus as Lord. I'm going to pray and then the band are going to come and lead us in one final song.